statistically, most people are going to come in to the church through invitations of people. That's still the highest way that, that people end up in a, in a church is by personal invitations of people that attend your church. Um, so we've got to hammer that with our people. Uh, but uh, we've got to, to, to do some things to create momentum where people invite and people bring people with them to church. And we'll talk more about that um, in just a second. But uh, back to the life cycle, because I mentioned the bell curve. And uh, there's a book, um, if you're interested in some resources, I'll name a few as we go through today. But um, Aubrey Malfers um, is an author, um, Aubrey, A-U-B-R-E-Y, Malfers, M-A-L-P-H-U-R-S. One of my favorite authors um, to read when it comes to church health. And um, he has a lot of books on uh, church planting and church revitalization, vision, mission, all those types of things, which is stuff that I teach a lot to our church planners. But he says in a book called Advanced Strategic Planning, is the name of the book, Advanced Strategic Planning, he talks about the life cycles of churches, and he talks about how that the natural process is for just what I said on the bell curve, churches are are started, they're born, they they grow, they plateau, they decline, they die. And what Aubrey Malfour says, and what he introduces in this book, Advanced Strategic Planning, is that um, he introduces what, at least he's the first person I ever heard talk about, uh, sigmoid or S-curves. And he says that an S-curve is basically anything that creates excitement in your church. And so an S-curve could be, um, you know, a new ministry launching, a new service, um, a new staff person, even a capital stewardship campaign, um, an event. Any, a lot of different things could be an S-curve. And what he basically says, and you kind of have to picture this in your mind because I don't have a graphic for it, but, but on, that, on that bell curve... Um, if you can insert an S-curve somewhere that looks something like this on, a, on, a, on that trajectory at some point, then you can extend the life of your church. And he says you stack S-curves so you continue to keep momentum moving forward. And so what that does is it just prolongs that inevitable plateau and decline. Malfers also says that you can insert S-curves at any point during the life cycle of the church, but it's a lot easier to insert them on the growth or the plateau stage. It gets harder the farther you are into the decline. It can still happen, and I've seen churches um, turn around where it appeared that the only option they had was death, but somehow they turned it around. I've seen that happen in some cases. In fact, the church that I mentioned uh, earlier where I said I went in and the, and the treasurer said they could last 18 more months, that church actually turned around on their own. Um, the pastor that was a new pastor that had come in, and, and he led them through an incredible process where they began really reaching their community, winning people. That church grew from that 8 or 10, 12 when he went there um, and had me come in uh, to uh, probably four or five, six years later, they were running up into the 70s. Um, and so, I mean, it can happen. Uh, at any point of the life cycle of the church, but it's just a lot easier to do it um, at the, uh, on the uh, growth or the plateau uh, stages before you get to the decline. And so we've got to figure out what are some things we can do? What are, what are some S-curves that, that we can um, insert into the life of the church? Well, let's talk about that a little bit because this is a part of momentum. So um, there's, the first thing is obviously take advantage of every natural big day that you that you have on the calendar, so Easter, um, Christmas, fall time, spring time, um, those are all very natural um, times when a lot of churches can capitalize 
on people getting back into their normal routines. Okay, so fall when school starts, um, it's you know back to school time. You can emphasize uh, you know first part of September or whatever after uh, Labor Day. Is Labor Day in September or I always get Labor Day Memorial Day mixed up. Labor Day. Um, so after Labor Day, you know, really have a, a big back to school uh, event of some kind where you're, you know, creating an event that people can can get excited about and that you can build some momentum around. And then again, you can do it at, you know, again, fall festival time with a, a carnival for the kids and or trunk or treat or or some kind of an event again. But don't just do stuff for kids. We've got to bring. I think for too long we've. I, that was going to sound really bad. I started to say we just focus on the kids. We should focus on kids, but but we can't just focus on the kids. Okay, so I mean we've got to we've got to bring families into the church, and, and for years and years and years we emphasize bus ministry and and that sort of thing. And that's great. I know kids that were saved out of bus ministry. I'm not saying that's not a good thing, but I'm saying that we we need to target the families too, so that uh, we can get you know the whole family um, into the church. And so instead of just doing um, a trunk or treat to where you uh, just do something for kids, figure out some way to bring in some kind of, of event that in, involves adults as well. Um, then, you know, you're coming back and then into the spring, you've got Easter, you've got uh, getting ready for summer, all those kinds of things. And so you've got some natural big days where you can um, do some events and things that create excitement, get your people to, to invite people to those events and that sort of thing. And that's going to help create uh, momentum, but then there's also something else that um, there's another book by a guy uh, by the name of Bob Franquiz, F R A N Q U I Z, um, and the book is called Pull, P U L L, and he mentions in this book that he says that um, churches need to create mini Easter's, and we've kind of retermed this as mini big days, uh, but uh, there's a natural holiday or some kind of a federal holiday almost every month of the calendar. So, you know, January you've got, uh, well, there's obviously the, you know, first of the year and, and kind of New Year's type things, but there's also Martin Luther King uh, Day in January. February you've got Super Bowl, you've got Valentine's Day. Uh, March, April you've got Good Friday and Easter. May is Mother's Day. June is Father's Day. July is Independence Day. Um, so you can go through the calendar and look at there's something in every month. And when I was a pastor, I hated those weekends. I hated those weekends because I just, I just counted on attendance being down. I counted on just the service being flat. I, count, you know, I, just, I just planned on it being a, a, a terrible Sunday. And you know what did I get every weekend of those Sundays? We had terrible Sundays. Uh, but we've got church planners right now that have applied this principle that have said that some of their biggest days are some of those holiday weekends, like Fourth of July, Mother's Day. Those were horrible weekends, you know, for me. But it's because I didn't do anything for them except kind of, you know, uh, prepare for the the impact, you know, kind of kind of thing. But if we if we create many big days, and so make those, and and you can't do it every month. I'm not saying do something every month. You you will burn your people out. You will spend too much money. Um, it's not going to be effective. Don't do something every month. But I'm saying pick and choose a few things through the year and even, you know, take advantage of those big days, especially Easter and Christmas Eve is a big thing nowadays. Uh, but around those, those times, uh, those are two should always be uh, big, you know, big Sundays, have events, have special services, 
uh, that, that people can invite folks to. Uh, but then pick out a couple other ones throughout the year uh, in whatever months will work best for your church and create many uh, big days. And so what you do for those and the way to make those events work is um, you've got to spend some time casting vision. So as a leader, as a pastor, how many of you are pastors? Okay, good number. So uh, this really falls on you as the leader, but then it spills over into other leaders in the church as well that have any influence over people, which are any, it should be any leaders in your church. But you've got to, to cast the vision for this. We're not just giving away candy and promoting tooth decay during our trunk retreat, okay? We're investing in our community. We're pouring ourselves into the lives of people to give them a connection to our church. We need to make sure people understand that. We also need to make sure that people understand that, you know what, we may not get a single family from a trunk retreat event that we do. We did a lot of events when I was pastoring. We never got a single person from that actual event. And it's real easy to get discouraged from that. And a lot of times churches will do a mailer or they'll do an event or they'll do some kind of a promotion and not see any results from it and say, oh, well, that didn't work, so we're just, you know, just go back to doing things the way we always did it. Well, I believe that it takes multiple touches uh, before you're going to start to see results. So especially early on, don't get discouraged. And leaders, you've got to cast this to vision to your people, and you've got to cast it every single week. You've got to remind them why we're doing what we're doing. And I'm skipping an important part that that's about you know, our, our mission of our church. What is the mission of your church? Um, I believe the mission of every church is the Great Commission. It's to make disciples. Um, and so, um, you know, we've got to cast that vision to our people. And then once they understand that it's about making disciples, then that's why we do these events. That's why we spend this money. That's why we put all this effort into these things. We may not see a single person come to our service as a result of this one event, but I can guarantee you over time, as people begin to see your church loving on the community and your church pouring into your community and your church being there to, to meet needs and to, to, to get their name out, and every time there's an event in the community, your church is there giving away uh, bottles of water or, or you know, being there to, to, to cheer on a, a, you know, people along a, the route of a 5K race or, or whatever it is. When, when, you, when you invest in, in your community, people are going to begin to take notice of that. And then when they do have uh, a problem in their family, a loved one dies, or, or there's a life event, which we know really raises uh, the, the, the potentiality of, of people attending church for the first time, or on that Easter Sunday when they decide it's time for us to go to church somewhere, they're going to remember your church. And so it's more likely that if they don't have a connection to another church somewhere, that they'll visit your church, and it may not even be around any time that you did an event, but maybe they came to an event, or they saw a flyer for an event, or they got a door hanger on their door months before, or whatever. Um, so don't get discouraged, but, but just uh, remember that you've got to cast the vision. And then before every event, you need to have at least four or five weeks where you are promoting that event. And when I say promoting it, I'm, I mean make it where it leaves a bad taste in your mouth every time you have to talk about it again. You talk about it so much. Um, every opportunity, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, make sure your Sunday school teachers, your youth group leaders, whatever, are promoting, 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 promoting uh, at least four or five weeks having flyers printed, having, you know, uh, social media campaigns, having, uh, you know, things printed and, and handed out church, whatever. You've got to spend at least four weeks, four to five weeks, promoting that event. 
Um, and then once you have the event, okay, then that's kind of a separate thing, whatever that is, that event. But then it takes another four or five weeks after the event to follow up. And that's the only way that you're going to really get results from events is through follow-up. And so it's important to make sure that any event you do, um, you get contact information, and there's different ways to do that. I don't have time to cover that today, but there's different ways you can do that. If you have an idea or whatever, I'll be happy to ask and answer questions or talk to you after. Uh, but uh, then, then we've got to follow up. But what the, where most churches miss the mark is they'll do an event but then they don't do any follow-up, and, and all they've done is thrown a big party, spent a lot of money, wore out their volunteers, but really nothing comes of it because they don't follow up. And so it takes, you know, four or five weeks building up to an event, have the event four or five weeks uh, to follow up, and then you start it over again, and you go on to the next one, and the next one, and the next one. And so just, you know, that, that's how you create uh, these, these waves of momentum um, in your church. And so, uh, again, the only way that, that you can do this is by, by repeatedly casting vision. Um, and obviously, like I said a moment ago, and I'm, I'm skipping probably the most important part, which is prayer. Um, obviously, uh, we need to have prayer campaigns. Um, I wish I had time to tell you this whole story. I, I will abbreviate it very, very short. But we had an event at our church one time that turned out to be the, the best and largest and most successful event that I've ever experienced in my entire 40 years, almost 40 years of being in ministry and, uh, in, and my whole life in the church. Um, and when it came up to it, was leading up to the event, I was so scared. I was so nervous because we were investing a lot of money, a lot of resources, a lot of people, um, a lot of uh, uh, reputation um, on this one event and it was kind of the, the big deal and, and I remember falling on my face before God and just saying God you've got to do this I mean this has gotten way too big for us our church we, we can't handle this thing this, you know, we started having prayer meetings about it we did cottage prayer meetings where we were meeting weekly in homes I mean we poured into this event spiritually through prayer more than we had ever ever done in any event and God literally opened up the windows of heaven and poured it out I mean it was it was an incredible thing um, and and it just reminds me every time that it's not about how good we can do an event or it's not about how much money we can spend on it even though those things are important and they're a part of it uh, but it really goes back to the spiritual element that God has got to add his blessing and so we can't leave out the prayer part so so even though I'm not emphasizing that please please Remember, this is a spiritual endeavor. We've got to pray. We've got to seek God. But, but then we've got to repeatedly cast the vision. We've got to cast vision that reflects the mission of the church. And so, in other words, I believe, especially when a church is, is just being planted, just being started, or if it's in a revitalization effort, every event and everything your church does has to be very intentional about reaching people. Uh, because if you, if you spend money and volunteer you know, resources and that kind of stuff on things that don't have an impact or that don't really do much, it's not going to take long and your people are going to burn out and they're not going to want to do anymore. But if they do an event and they see a new family come from it, that's going to get them excited. It's going to energize them for the next one. And so we've got to cast the vision. We've got to stay true to our core values and to our mission. Uh, we've got to um, emphasize, um, you know, evangelism. That's why we do events. 
Every event that you do in your church should be something to point people to Jesus Christ. Um, and, and again, I don't have time to really unpack all of that, but, but we've, we've got to make sure that that, and again, you can do a fall carnival and a, and a, a, a trunk or treat or whatever um, and, and still focus on evangelism. You have to be strategic in how you do that. And I'm not saying there's, you know, there's a lot of different ways to do it, but we just have to keep evangelism um, in the forefront. And so um, we've got to just try to do whatever we can to make sure that we are, are bringing leaders on board with this, developing leaders, bringing along people with us to, to help us. Um, Pastor, you've got to hear this above everything else that I say today. You can't do any of this stuff alone. You cannot do this stuff alone. Um, you have got to recruit help. You've got to recruit leaders. You've got to bring people on board with you um, to help you. Um, I'm barely scratching the surface of all the stuff that I wanted to cover in this session, so I've got to hurry along. But let me just talk a little bit about uh, kind of some more of this, but, but really talking about um, our, our churches. And I want you to think about your church because most churches have a – a, a rich and a bountiful history. Uh, we have, a, you know, a past. Uh, many of us have, have um, experienced great things in our churches in the past. Um, we, we've seen God pour out an incredible amount of, of you know, uh, himself into things in the life of the church through the past. And people tend to remember those things. And people always want to be drawn to the past. And that's a very natural thing because it is, it's known, it's comfortable, it's something everybody's experienced, and so it's easy to go uh, to, to the past. And I had mentioned earlier that I've had the privilege of, of being on staff at some great churches over the years. Um, I pastored a great church that was, that was um, just a, it was a good church when I went there, and it was, a, I mean, it was just a great church. And uh, all of those churches that I've been a part of through the years all ran strong numbers. Some of them were larger churches, largest church in the state at one time. Um, and, and they were seeing people saved and baptized. Uh, they were very influential in the community. They were all vibrant and they were all strong. But three out of those four churches today do not exist. Three of the four churches don't even exist anymore. And I'm only 57, so I'm not talking about over a 100 or 200 year span. I'm talking about over a 50 year span. Uh, churches that once were strong and were vibrant and were growing now don't even exist. So what happened? Well, culture happened. Change in communities happened. I don't have time to even scratch the surface of this, but I'll just say this and you'll understand what I mean. People are different today than they were a few years ago. Amen? I mean, who would have ever dreamed that we would be fighting and arguing over issues like we're fighting and, and arguing over today. Gender issues in, in, in junior high schools, you know, bathroom laws and um, just, uh, just all this stuff that deals with sexuality and all that kind of stuff. I mean, who would have ever dreamed, I would have never imagined in my 20s, 30s, maybe even in my 40s, that we would ever be dealing with a lot of the issues that we're dealing with today. So culture, people have changed. And so I'm not saying that the church has to, you know, change as far as we should not change. Our foundation is the word of God. We should not change our message. Uh, but we've got to change our methods. We've got to change, uh, you know, the, our approach on certain things. Because <clears throat> what we've done the last 50 years does not work today. And so we've got to just be honest with ourselves and, and look at that and say, what is it that we need to do? And one of the most dangerous things... Um, that can happen in a church, and I believe it's what happened in these churches that I mentioned that I used to be a part of, 
was that the voices inside the church were louder than the voices outside the church. And when that becomes a reality, churches become very inwardly focused and it becomes more about us. It becomes more about making, you know, Brother Henry and Sister Betty happy. I hope there's no Henrys or Bettys here. But, but um, you know, just um, it becomes all about maintaining, about trying to keep people happy, trying to, you know, uh, do the stuff that we do. And, 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 and we lose the focus on, on the outside. But, but the voices outside are more important than the voices inside. Now, again, I'm, I'm not saying go home and blow up your church and, and go and say, oh, we're not, you know, we're not doing this anymore and we're not doing that anymore. I'm not saying to do that, but I'm just saying that we've got to realize and understand that that's where um, it starts. When the, when, when the church becomes inwardly focused is when, you know, you can pretty much start the timeline of the decline of the church. And so that's why people ask me all the time, why did church plants grow so fast? I mean, it seems like, you know, we've got some churches, we've had some really successful, thank the Lord, um, new churches launch over the past few years where they'll go literally from zero to we've had some launching with 200 or more than 200 on their very first Sunday. Uh, and that's over a six, eight, nine month period of time that they're doing the pre-launch work. And, and we've got some church plants that are growing larger than they've ever grown before. And people ask me all the time, why do church plants grow so much faster than established churches? And I think it's a really simple answer. It's because the, the, the new churches don't have any we. They, they don't have any us. It's all them. And so they grow because their focus is on the community. Their focus is on the outside. But in, too many, in, in most established churches, the focus is on us. It's on we. It's on, on, on the inside. And, and that, when that happens, then that's the beginning of, of the decline. And so... We've got to just make sure that we realize and remember that um, we, we can, you know, turn things around. We can um, help people move, uh, move forward. Let me share with you real quick um, five characteristics of churches that, um, that, are, that are stuck. Um, and that you'll be able to look at these and say, okay, these are true in my church. If this is true in your church, this means your church is stuck. Number one, attendance is, is flat or declining. Um, number two, methods are more important than the mission. Uh, number three, there's a pull to go back to the way things used to be, or there's a pull to go, to go back to doing things the way we used to do things or whatever. Number four, lay leaders have more power than the pastor. Number five, the focus is keeping people from leaving the church. If any of those things are true in your church, then that's a problem, and, and you need to be willing and honest enough to say um, these are true in my church, so what do we need to do about it? So, um, like I said, I've got so many, so much more, and my time is, is really up. I wanted to be done at 10 till give you a little break. So uh, let me just kind of blow through uh, some of this other stuff real quick. But um, uh, let's look at um, uh, some strategies or things that I think we can do uh, to, to help turn our churches around. I had some more stuff before that, but we'll skip to this. So what, what are some strategic changes that I believe that churches can do that will help them um, to gain momentum? The first thing is that the pastor has to communicate a sense of urgency to the people. Okay, you've got to communicate a sense of urgency to the people. Um, it requires honesty with the church, you know, of saying, hey, and, and you've got to be really careful here. You're treading on thin ice because you're talking about somebody's baby. <laughs> you know, you're, you're, you're calling somebody's baby ugly when you start talking bad about your church. 
And I'm not saying talk bad about your church, but I'm just saying we've got to be honest. We've got to say, you know what, we've got some issues. We've got some problems here. We've, we've got to deal with some things, and we need to be honest. And so it requires a, a gut-level honesty from the pastor as he, as he casts this sense of urgency. Um, and sometimes it means the pastor has to be willing to take you know, some hits on this kind of stuff. Um, obviously, you don't want to lose your job, uh, but you want to still uh, try to lead people along. It's very, you know, uh, difficult to do this in times, at times, but, but you've got to uh, communicate this. And I think, you know, communicating it from, from a place of concern um, instead of criticism. Um, in other words, you know, start a, start a series. Um, don't even tell anybody what you're doing yet, but just go back and start preaching on the Great Commission. And talk about how our church needs to have an impact in the community and how our, our mission needs to be making disciples and reaching people. And, and we've got to figure out a way to get new people. Nobody's going to disagree with that stuff if they're you know, spiritual at all. They understand what the Great Commission is saying and they believe the Great Commission. I believe that most of our, all of our people in our churches believe the Great Commission. The problem is they just think the Great Commission is for someone else. They think it's for the pastor, for the deacons, for the leaders. It's not for all of us. But the Great Commission is for all of us as a church to go out and to make disciples. And so we can share with them the urgency, the need, and, and really start building um, the case that, that we've got to be doing more than we're doing on fulfilling the Great Commission and making disciples. And even starting at home, I'm not talking about trying to get them to give more money uh, to missions, although that's great, and, and churches should give to missions um, and, and all of that. But I'm saying even starting at home with our community, we've got to communicate a sense of urgency. The second thing is the pastor has to consistently and frequently cast the vision. I talked about that a little bit already, uh, but every sermon you preach, every lesson you teach, every time you are in the pulpit, you need to be recasting the vision um, in some form. I'm not saying you've got to hammer it every single week, but you've got to mention something. Remember our event coming up and what it's for, and, and you just got to be casting the vision every opportunity you have because people forget um, way too easily uh, but we've got to consistently, frequently cast the vision in every sermon, every lesson we teach. Number three, uh, the church has to be willing and uh, begin to implement change. Uh, we have to cast the vision for change. Um, as a pastor, we have to tell people why it's important. Um, a great example of this um, is I was consulting with a church a few years ago um, in Alabama, and um, I didn't know anything was going on uh, in this particular area. It just happened to be what I mentioned, but I said something about having a children's check-in system. And I said, every church should have a children's check-in system for their kids program. And um, I didn't know that that had been a hot topic in that church. And they were arguing over that, saying, oh, well, our, our workers know all the kids and we don't need to waste money on computers and printers and checking people in and all that kind of stuff. And, but what I, my argument is, is that if you ever want a new family to come in and you want that new family to feel comfortable, you need to have that check-in system in place before that first new family shows up because they don't know everybody in your church. They don't know that their child is going to be properly and securely checked in and taken care of and all that. So if you don't have a child check-in system, your people may be fine with that, but new people coming in are not going to be fine with it. And so if we're going to try to bring new people in, we need to have the systems in place to support those new things. And so I said that at, at this, in, in this uh, meeting that I was having with these leaders, and a lady came up to me afterwards. She said, oh, she said, you, can't, you don't know how much I appreciate what you said. She said, I've been fighting for a children's check-in system, and they've been fighting against it because they say you know, they know everybody and just what I explained. And so we've got to just 
make people realize and help people to understand that we've, we're going to see some changes coming and we've got to implement some things that we may not even really need right now, but we're going to need it at the next step. Um, C. Peter Wagner, the church growth guru of decades past, said that the first step in a church growing is to start acting like the next size larger church. So in other words, if you're a church of 50 and you want to grow to 100, you need to set the systems and the structure in place to be a church of 100, which is different than being a church of 50. And if you want to be a church of 200, you've got to set the structure and the systems to have a church of 200 before you ever get there. Does that make sense? And so you've got to make sure that those systems are in place. And again, too, way too much stuff there uh, to, to really deal with. But uh, number four, the church has to stop negative momentum and, and begin moving forward. And so um, the quickest way and easiest way I can explain how to do that is if you picture a, a big wheel that, that's spinning one direction, um, it's got some momentum, and, and a lot of churches are spinning in a negative direction. Okay, they've got problems. Uh, there's fighting, backstabbing going on, whatever. That's negative momentum. Uh, you're certainly not going to grow during those, those cycles. And so you've got to figure out how to, uh, how to stop that negative momentum before you can ever get it going in the right direction. And the way you do that is by figuring out something that you can insert, some kind of a leverage point, uh, you know, a, a big stop. You can stick in that gear to grind it to a halt before you can ever spin it and start going in, in that opposite direction. And so you've got to figure out a way to stop negative momentum. And again, I don't have time to deal with that. There's a lot of different principles for that. It goes back to the life cycle of the church and the S-curves and, and all of that. But um, we've got to figure out a way that we can stop negative momentum before we can ever get it. If you have neg negative momentum, you may just be flat. And then the fifth and last thing is that pastors, um, uh, leaders, uh, uh, pastors and leaders have to learn to measure and celebrate every win. And what I mean by that is we've got to... We've got to celebrate when, when good things happen in our church. Way too many times we let great things go by and we never even mention it. Man, if, if, if some you know, little kid gets saved in, in a Sunday school class or in children's church or whatever, you need to celebrate that in big church as soon as you can. Hey, we've got, we need to tell you about little you know, Emily back here in our children's program. She got saved last Sunday and, and celebrate that. Um, and or celebrate even the smallest little victories, anything that happens. Hey, we had two new families uh, join our Sunday school program or small groups or, or whatever. And we, I mean, just celebrate these things because when you celebrate win, um, wins, then you're helping people realize and understand, hey, you know what, what we're doing is making a difference. It is working. It is uh, changing some things. And so uh, we need to celebrate um, wins. And one of the things that we don't do very well, I think, in, in my opinion, in most churches, is we don't keep very good statistics. And so you can't celebrate wins if you don't know when you're winning. And so you need to also keep metrics. So you need to know how many, you know, you have in Sunday school, how many you have in church, how many you have Sunday night, Wednesday night, and most people do track attendance numbers, but also um, salvations and rededications and uh, you know, just whatever it is, what, some kind of, you know, people that are uh, getting involved that weren't involved in ministry before or whatever, just keep track of those things uh, so that you can celebrate whenever um, good things uh, do happen. And so um, I've given you a whole lot of information, um, and I've got a whole lot more, but I, I have got to stop. So um, let me just kind of abruptly crash land right there.